When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm JJ Bull, your host today. Yes, and today I am joined in the studio by John McKenzie. Hello. No dogs. No dogs. No. Also, all the way from Germany. Ah, how is your gates, Seb? <laughs> that was horrifying. That's absolutely <laughs> horrifying. I realise I don't know how to say it in German straight away, and I did something which is on the verge of, you know. I mean, we've learned the lesson about staying in our comfort zones. I am well, JJ Bull. Thank you for asking. Those of you watching uh, the podcast, brother and listening, will be able to see in the little top corner of the screen there Seb's cat. What's the Seb? What's the cat called? That's Luca. It's called Seb. Seb and his cat Seb. That's Luca, actually. Hello, Luca. And also joined uh, by us in the studio is <laughs> Tim Spears. Hi, Tim. Hello. Uh, Tim is a journalist for The Athletic. He's very good, aren't you? Not for me to say. In the top five, would you say? No. <laughs> no? Okay, well, we brought him in because we think he's the best. Uh, and today we're going to talk about all the football that happened, all the things that we like, the things that we were interested in. And I'm sure many of you listening are very interested in football. And if you are interested in football, you should subscribe to The Athletic. And if you go to theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, oh baby, there's a deal on right now, which is, I think, like always, a 30-day free trial. So you can just try it without paying for it for 30 days. What have you read recently, John? I read a piece by Big Tim Spears. Top five journalist. Mm, about Nuno, the future of Nuno. So Nuno's now out in the Middle East having, having a grand old time, but quite quite the shift really from, from Wolves to Spurs to them. This is Nuno yeah. Espirito Santo. That's right, yeah. And uh, what do you think of him? He's just a bit wasted in Saudi Arabia. I don't know what your you know Saudi Arabian football knowledge is like. Um, Very high. And so we're going to talk about Saudi Arabian football. We're going to talk about Premier League things, lots of that. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be a great show. I think it's going to be tremendous. So we're going to do that. I'm going to stop doing silly voices. I'm in a funny mood all of a sudden. So let's go and do games. And I'm going to leave you in the warm hands and the cool embrace of Tim Spears, top five journalist. Ah, here we go. Newcastle United 3-3, Manchester City. What a game. Seb, what do you make of this game? What's happened? Oh, it was fun. If you could produce an advert for the Premier League or what the Premier League thought of itself, that's kind of the game, isn't it? It's like impossible intensity, goals, fun, atmosphere. It was extraordinarily high quality. You know what, JJ? I I, I thought for most of the game, because when Newcastle went 3-1 up, you felt like they were playing on quite a lot of adrenaline. So you're waiting for that point at which it would subside and then Manchester City would take control. And that happened a little bit, but not nearly to the extent that I thought it was going to. Uh, but it's just really entertaining. And 
it's kind of, if I'm a Newcastle fan, the start of the season hasn't, I mean, it's been a little bit mixed. They've played pretty well, but the results have been mixed. I'd be so encouraged by that because there was no inferiority complex, which let's be fair, if you're facing that Man City and you've got Holland and like you're going to, I think a Newcastle team of a couple of years ago would have just lapsed into a kind of, not even a 4-5-1, but a 5-5 and just hope for the best and left Sam Maxman up front by himself. And it's kind of a reminder they're a really different team. It's just a lot of different components now and a lot of different sort of utility within it. And they were great. It's also like 3-3 is not the kind of score I'd associate with Man City taking on Newcastle. And um, it's not fair to say it's like a basketball game back and forth, but there's a lot less control that City had than what they'd normally have, John. I was surprised at how intense Newcastle were, really, because I don't think I've seen them press quite so high, quite so intensely for... They leave the like three of, defenders at the back just to deal with like yeah. three or four Man City players. It's super hard to push that. Yeah, and, and I wonder whether or not this is something we're going to see more and more with teams coming up against Man City, which is if you can make the game more transitional, if you can make it more back and forth, then you're you're almost levelling the playing field a little bit. Obviously, Man City have great players and everyone sort of knew that it was inevitable that they would get back into it. But I th- what I th- found so fascinating was that even when... Man City were coming back at Newcastle. They were still happy to press high and and they were playing really aggressive football. Obviously, we need to talk about Alan Maximum, who just sort of ran that City defence ragged. He's outrageous. He was just... Yeah. He's the best I've seen him really play. Good. Well, he's so fun to watch, right, yeah. on St Maximum. So he's really fun to watch. His output is still... I th- it just doesn't... That's what stops him from being a, a proper top-level player, is that he's got all the, the dribbly boy skills really fast. He accelerates from zero to whatever, like 90 in about one second. There's no slow build-up. He's just instantly there, the acceleration, which makes him so hard to deal with. And because he's got that centre of balance where you can turn players inside out, you can see Walker wasn't really enjoying it. But then I wonder whether... A lot of focus has been on these interior fullbacks that he's playing, having Walker and Cancelo pushed inside. which leaving, They're very narrow in this game, I've seen when you look back at it, which leaving loads of space wide where the wide midfielders were going into. Which, again, if, when you do that, then you have to have St. Maximin. And who's other... Well, Amarom is playing central right as well. And then you push into the wide areas outside of them. Is that where a lot of the joy came from? The reason why managers like Pep invert their fullbacks to a certain extent is because they don't want to cede any space in the middle. And obviously, the, as you've said, the the result of that is that you end up giving space in the wide areas. Now, usually the, that's fine because it's a longer... If you play the ball into the channel, your defensive unit can drop back and it's a shorter distance to goal than the attacking players who have to go out wide and then come back into the goal. And that's usually fine. But in this game, the, the issue is, is that as soon as you are giving Alan some maximum time on the ball to just get up speed... He could just run at people one-on-one and you, you, there were so many times in that game where you'd see one City player attempt to jump in and, it, and then you're at, he's round them and then the next player comes across and you get this, these sorts of chains then where you're, you're just running for your life trying to stop this guy and he uh, just Wilson's pulled them goal to pieces. Wilson's goal was just like Maxman running straight at them, right? Yeah. And then it's only, it's, I think it's only him and Wilson up top against four or five City players. Tim, would you say this is something of a, a blueprint for how to beat City or just a one-off tactical plan that worked very well? Or was it just momentum? What was it? Well, not many teams have an Alisson Maximan type player, I guess. I felt like City did underestimate Newcastle a little bit and there didn't seem to be a plan to take care of St Maximan. In what way did they underestimate them? Do you see it in the performance from the start or what do you think happened? Just the fact that um, he was able to isolate defenders pretty easily. So it seemed like City were very much just focused on what they wanted to do, and you, like you were saying, you know, leaving those gaps out wide for some maximum to exploit. But then I think I've, I personally probably underestimated Newcastle a little bit. You know, you look at a week before, I think they had four shots at, against Brighton and one mm-hmm. on target. 
I do think they need some creative reinforcements in those forward areas. You know, Samaxman is very inconsistent. You know, he won't do that every week. Amron's not going to score you a lot of goals. Callum Wilson probably going to get injured at some point. But I was surprised at how they were able to create chances and obviously score three against City. Well, there was a thing I was trying to do a video on a while ago with Newcastle. And I found the numbers. Let me find, see if I can find the numbers because they, they are good uh, for Newcastle stats like in terms of their creativity. So they're trying to find, they're trying to buy a striker. So they've got someone who can help out Callum Wilson when he's not around, whatever. The problem for me with them is that it's in their creativity. So they don't really create many chances. I think last season, so last season, the chances created in open play. So Maxwell had the most by far, 33 over the whole season. Or oh, this is actually, no, since Eddie Howe came in charge. So I looked at stats from when he joined whichever month that was, November maybe? Yeah, I think so. And so in that time, it's about 27 games Howe was in charge for. And then you had, so Maxwell's 33 chances in open play created in that time. Then behind him, the next most creative player is Joe Linton. On 23, he's a ball-winning midfielder now, which doesn't really make sense. And then below them, you've got Ryan Fraser, Jacob Murphy, Joe Willick, all much lower numbers. And it, like, on the FB ref, St. Maxman has the highest expected assists all season last year of 5.8. The next closest is Ryan Fraser on 2.2. Like, immediately you see what the problems are. There's no creative players. So you'd be looking for surely some sort of winger or advanced playmaker because they're playing a three in the middle. So it means you'd maybe have your creativity coming from wide. I don't know what they're looking for. What, what do they need? Yeah, I think it's it's the age-old problem, isn't it? If you have a player like Alan Suck Maximum, you're going to try and use them as much as possible. So there, there can be a tendency for these non-top six sides, because I think we still have to call Newcastle that, and I don't know how long that will continue, but mm. for, for them to have a standout player and for all of the creativity to go through them. We saw the same with Leeds and Rafinha last last season. And I think the, the real trick that Newcastle are going to have now is is starting to develop more flexibility through the team so that they can have that, that creativity coming through. It's what we've seen happen with Arsenal this season, I think. In previous seasons, Arsenal have been way too right side heavy because they've been reliant on players like Erdogan and um, and Saka on that side. And now it feels as though they genuinely have creative options on the left-hand side. And that just makes them a much more dangerous option because I, I guess that the thing is that teams that figure out how to defend against some, some maximum, if you can do that, and obviously that's an, a big if, but if you can do that, then you are stopping Newcastle's main source of creativity. And that's what I agree with Tim. I think they, I don't think... Man City did a good job of stopping some maximum getting the ball in controlled possession and then being able to run at players. And that was where they really struggled in that game. Seb, I think you said in the WhatsApp group chat that when they put Chris Wood on, they lost a lot of mobility up front and that changed the way Newcastle were playing, almost probably negatively. Yeah, because I think Wilson's a really big part of Sam Maxman's form. So what's interesting, if you think about sort of City's default attacking shape was that kind of 2-3-5 that Guardiola likes to set up. Now, like the area of the Newcastle side which is most potent is that little triangle between Joelinton, Joelinton, Brazilians um, pronounce his name Joelinton. Someone should get in touch and tell us if we're right about that. It's Joelinton. Joelinton, okay, fine. Yeah. Um, Joelinton, yes, very much a, a ball-winning player now, but he's also quite vertical when he has the ball um, to the left side of the midfield. Wilson likes that area too, and obviously Sir Maxman likes you know, that sort of error right against the touchline. And so against a team like City, who are always going to commit a few men forward, you're going to have a mismatch in that area. And Wilson's pace is a huge problem. I don't. How many times have you seen Carl Walker struggle for pace? And that's a little bit to do with Sir Maxman, but it's also to do with the fact that he's got three players who want to go forward as quickly as possible on the ball. And I just felt, as I said in the WhatsApp, it's not necessarily that Chris Wood is an inferior player, it's just the contrast is too great. It signifies a completely different 
approach. Like you're not going to, Chris Wood's not a mobile player really, he's effective in his own way. But I think the kind of, the important thing with Wilson is to have, like Tim said earlier, like his injury history is problematic, but having cover, which is stylistically similar so that you don't lose that, that attacking dynamic when he goes off or when he has to be replaced or when you, you know, even if you want a, an extra man at the back and if you want that out ball, make sure you maintain the attacking avenue and don't quite have that right now. Well, this thing, if you put, if you put Wood there, him, he's more of a player that can play with back to goal. I mean, that's the obvious thing to say. But when you have Wilson, you can play on the break with Newcastle and have a goal threat when you you can make use of Almiron and St Maximum making the runs because you've got a boy in the middle who can get play at pace and do that. If you play Wood, he almost becomes withdrawn and we have to let Almiron and St Maximum then become the central forwards. But that's where they get yeah, that down because both of those are out. Because also you, you um, want you want a centre forward like Wilson's a big guy too. Like you want a centre forward who's going to draw defensive attention because that's really like when Sir Max Man's asked to do too much by himself, he becomes almost like a parody of himself. That's where the memes come from and the kind of the overindulgent touches. What you want is him going moving into space, not receiving the ball at standing start and then taking players on. It's a completely different player, and so it's nothing against Chris Wood. I, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to um, denigrate him as a player. He's, he's a useful Premier League footballer, but it's just not quite right in terms of squad balance, that's all. Um, John, Pep after the game, Pep, like he's been mate, Guardiola after the game said, uh, he spoke about the lack of control and the, the thing I found most interesting about it was mentioning how, I think he said, Phil Foden and, and, and Holland, was it? Yeah, so they were really direct and attacking and they want to make things happen. But... If you'd had Grealish or Mares or Bernardo Silva playing on those white areas, they'd have slowed things down because that means they have better control of it. What can you explain yeah, what this means? What I'm always reminded about? of yeah. the the first game that Leeds and Man City played when Leeds were promoted, and it was Bielsa versus Pep Guardiola. And I, I think what was so fascinating about that game was that Bielsa was really good at, at getting City to play the way that Leeds were going to benefit from most. So they they made it really transitional. They made it like lots of turnovers, back and forth, stopping City from having control. And I think that is probably City's weak spot if if you can get them playing in those moments. Obviously, they're still going to be great because they've got such great players in transitional moments. But you take away a little bit of the control and you're you're starting to level the play, playing field a little bit. And I think that was what Newcastle did so well. I think that Eddie Howe had a really good match approach which was to try and get the the, the game as destabilized as possible make it chaotic and I, I think that that's what Pep was talking about at the end he was like I we need to get our forward players holding the ball for longer slowing the game down maintaining possession maintaining control and that's one way that one you keep the ball away from some maximum and so obviously like if the more transitional it is the more likely Newcastle are to just keep finding that channel with San Maximum in it, but also that it it just it just starts shifting the the game state towards a situation that is going to benefit City more. That's it because you have like Grealish wide left. Um, it I think this season and I think a lot of last season people have talked about how he hasn't looked to have been hugely effective. Maybe not as good as he would have been for Aston Villa, but by having Grealish there rather than someone like Foden, Foden's more like to go forward straight away, whereas Grealish seems to take loads and loads of touches, but it slows everything down which then means they can get the rest of the players in position to be able to maintain the counter-attacks. It's a weird way of thinking about it, is that the attacking players are almost the most defensive because <laughs> you're trying to slow them down right at, at source. 
I think managers like Pep and, and Julian Nagelsmann, they, they lie awake at night worrying about defensive transition. That's what, because they, they're ultimately control managers. They want, they know that if they can retain control of the game, they're going to win more often than not. And so this is the sort of thing that will have kept Guardiola up last night being like, how did we not manage to stop them from having so many transitions? Well, another manager who's up all night <laughs> is um, probably Thomas Tuchel because, Tim, Chelsea got done 3-0 by Leeds. Um, what's going on at Chelsea? What's happening? It was good fun, wasn't it? It was I, good fun. I enjoyed that. I was incredibly hungover watching this game. I, I said that from the outset. And What stage of hungover? Were you lying down on, on the sofa hungover? Or? Just progressed from the bed to the sofa, uh, which was a big moment. And um, <laughs> Honestly, genuinely, I'm not exaggerating here, watching Leeds' pressing made me feel worse <laughs> because my eyes were having to try and keep keep up with them. <laughs> it was it was ridiculous. I, I was so impressed with Leeds. I wasn't sure that they had that in them but it very much seems like a lot of things came together on the day at the right time what were those things what do they do so well for the first time under Jesse Marshall and particularly the way that they were playing vertically their pressing was was ridiculous and they put they put Chelsea so much energy into in there, all kinds of problems obviously the classic example being the opening goal where Mendy just had nowhere to go well he should have booed it in the stands but you know Probably not allowed to do that. Well, I think this is interesting, this <laughs> Mendy bit, right? So we did a video in the weekend after the, the match, and uh, I agree that Mendy made the error by not clicking it, away, clicking, it, clicking it away early enough. But you can, I think you can see that when he receives a ball from Gallagher, it's, it's the high pressure from Leeds that forces the ball back. It's the only option Gallagher's got, really, is to put it back. And then James, Silva, Koulibaly, and Kukurea stand and watch him because they think he's going to boot it. They think he is, but he thinks they're going to fall back into position. I think they've been told to offer the short pass out. You're trying to bypass the press and take Leeds out of position. That's what you want them to do, right? But they don't do it. And so my question to you is, is it actually Mendy's fault? I think it's a bit of both. I don't think so. I think if, if you watch if you watch the start of the game, that's what Leeds are doing constantly. So surely the defenders should be aware that they need to create that option and that, you know, and, and spot the danger. But nobody else seemed to spot the danger. Yeah. But yeah, he should have booted it into the stands, but d does he get fined for that? Is, it, is that like two, two weeks wages? It's, it sort of looked that way because surely that was just a logical thing. But what's worse, a fine at that level when you're already a millionaire or the wrath of Tuchel? <laughs> Probably the wrath, I would say. The wrath. Um, yeah, Tuchel's comments about um, having to drive up to Leeds were, were quite interesting post-match as well. Oh, Seemed to be a bit of a problem. Well, I, th I think they said there was some kind of issue with the flight. The players were able to fly from London to Yorkshire. Um, but the coaching staff weren't. They had to go by road. How long is it by um, road? Three and a half hours. And how long is it by sky? Probably half an hour. Don't they have to go through all the luggage and stuff? You have to go through... I mean, they're not taking suitcases. But you know what I mean? They don't have to go through security. the players here. Because the whole point of... I don't think the players do. Isn't that isn't no, no, like a big you... reason why they like to use planes, isn't, mm. isn't it? Because they get to... But you know how when you go away somewhere on a plane, you have to get to the airport early and then you have to go through security and then you have to do all that nonsense and it's like two hours. And to travel to like Heathrow from you is like an hour and a half. And you're like, well, I could have just got a train the whole way. I presume they, they have contingency plans for this sort of stuff, right? But I, I'm led to believe that if you fly up in a private jet, you don't need to do all of that security stuff so it makes it a lot quicker. Do you think having a coach rather than a flight is going to make a big difference to the, the coaching staff, Seb? I... So no, I, my mind goes to that athletic article that was published recently where they did a kind of a um, accountancy of excuses made by Premier League managers. And I remember Thomas Tuchel finishing top of that. So another one for the list, maybe. I don't know. I mean, it, it's inconvenient whether it affects the result. I mean, none, none of the things that happened on Sunday seem directly attributable to 
travel issues. Well, no, it's not. I mean, what do you think up at Chelsea just now? They don't haven't looked amazing so far. You watched the Spurs game as well. Well, it's kind of 50-50 between hugely impressed by some parts of their game, but really worried about particularly defensive set pieces. One of the things that got lost out of the Spurs game because there was so much refereeing controversy, rightly, because there were some bad decisions, but Chelsea defended the two Spurs goals incredibly poorly. They're really self-inflicted wounds. And I've only seen highlights of this game. I was watching I was watching West Ham Brighton during it, but it seemed like more of the same. A lot of weird decisions, like the Koulibaly second yellow was a very strange decision. Beyond the actual goals, like the, the, the idea that the game's lost and in that situation on a yellow card, you decide to make that choice so that you'll suspend the next week. It's weird. From For really, those who haven't seen it, yeah. what he does is he, there's a player <clears> almost getting away from him and he comes across him, doesn't really need to, puts his arms around him so it's obviously going to be a yellow card, but he should... Did he just forget he's on a yellow? He looked genuinely sad as well after it happened. I felt bad for him. I feel like also, JJ, that it's an incomplete squad. There's clearly a few things the club want to do in the next 10 days, a transfer window. And it has that sort of transient feel to it, both in the sense of like um, some of the noise we're hearing out of the club, but also some of the systems you're seeing on the pitch. That forward line doesn't quite work, I don't feel, at the moment. Defensively, I don't quite think they have the players that they would have liked ahead of the summer, knowing that they were going into a kind of a period of extensive defensive rebuilding. It's been a little bit underwhelming. And midfield, like you take Kovacic and Kante out of that midfield, it's still a real problem. And you just... It loses a lot of energy. This yeah, is what I noticed. They're, sure. they're missing energy. Conor Gallagher as well, had a really low, um, this is a really nerdy thing to say, but like a low pass accuracy, is like 75%-ish, I think, uh, which is super low in that midfield. He was maybe struggling to deal with the intensity of what's going on with Leeds. He's not used to playing in that big possession game. So Crystal Palace last season very much playing not mostly in possession. I mean, they they, were, they tried to change a little bit under Vieira last season, but not on Crystal Palace. And so the players are linked with, like Wesley Fofana, if he comes in, he could go right side of centre-back, which pushes Rhys James instantly to being a wing-back. And I thought, I think he's their best attacking player at the moment, Rhys James. He's one of the only ones getting in behind, penetrating the lines. Um, he was caught offside, I think, more than, I don't know if he's more than any other player, but he's offside about three or four times, which is not ideal for him. I'm looking at your cat, Seb. There we go. Rhys James getting in behind, that's really important. Frankie de Jong's really strong link. That's another thing. And uh, at by the end of this game, Tuchel had basically abandoned any sort of form of what I would call tactical structure and gone for a, a chaos card with... Who is it? Who is it? The midfield was like Pulisic, Ziyech. Uh, there was Ruben Loftus-Cheek was moved in there at one point. He was playing well. as a 10 for a lot of it, yeah. yeah. Do you think the one of the things with Gallagher is... I remember speaking to Dom Fifield about him last season when he was at Palace. And one of the things there, if you think about the players he had outside him, so he's playing on the right of a three in midfield, but he had Joel Ward, he had Jordan Ayew. He's quite conservative players by sort of Chelsea standards. And so there's a little bit more onus for him to be more vertical, more hectic, more chaotic, because he was a he was a kind of um, disruptive force, obviously a really super good footballer too. Um, but it's a very different role at Chelsea because Loftus-Cheek has come in and he's... Obviously not an orthodox wing-back. There's obviously a variation if Rhys James plays I wouldn't that say he's not a wing-back. Yeah, I, I agree, but in the, in the way that he's used at the moment, like he's kind of, he's he's a sort of quasi-wing-back, isn't he? Because of kind of his possessional abilities. And that worked really well against Spurs. Gallagher's got to do a little bit of relearning if he's to, to be a kind of a first-team regular at Chelsea this season, just because the pieces are different and the way that team plays is different. Well, the most surprising thing for me about Gallagher was that he looked a bit off the ball, Tim. Like, he just looked a bit short of the kind of buzz and spark that I associate with him. Like, he seems to make things happen normally, but he seemed a bit, I don't know, it's something... In fact, the whole Chelsea team are a bit kind of quiet. Yeah, I think that goes back to Seb's point earlier about, you know, the systems in place and attack, not quite having the players that they want yet, 
does Gallagher fit into that? You know, there's been quite a few suggestions that he might be let out on loan as well. You know, I don't know if this was a bit of an audition, audition for him, but it didn't particularly go very well. It's his first start for him as well, I think, isn't it? Yeah. Um, John, you are a huge Jesse Marsh fan <laughs> and won't stop talking about how much you love all the things he does, especially right. for Leeds, your beloved Leeds. Well, when, when he joined, we actually just had to stop him because it was boring. Jesse Marsh, Jesse Marsh, There's Jesse murals. Marsh. Word, remember when he turned the studio into a sign. mural? Do you remember What's that? WhatsApping me at three in the morning to talk about Jesse Marsh. It's just not the way we do things at TIFO, John. Yeah, we get it, John. Yeah. God. But um just wish you celebrated my <laughs> my loves, you know? Yeah, well we were trying my now. desires too. We're trying now. Joe's not here, we can do what we want. Yeah, we I can guess. keep the mural up. But do, is this an example of everything that he puts in place working exactly as it should? Was it a bit of luck involved? What happened? Because it, we're talking about Chelsea a bit here, but Leeds were magic. This for me was a game about all about tempo. So Leeds obviously, as we've said, super high intensity, high press, putting pressure on the on the ball and yeah, the whole of Jesse Marsh's approach is such an outlier that it's worth saying that if you think back to that game and think, what did Leeds actually do in possession? The answer is not a lot. They scored the one goal from from open play, and that was the third goal when 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 Chelsea were pushing forward a little bit. The first goal, as we've said, comes from, from the, the Mendy incident, however you read it, and then the second one comes from a set piece. Jesse Marsh is not too concerned about possessing the ball as a way of controlling games. Like a ghost. Yeah, exactly. So the, he... he it's, Make he him talked, move with his mind. You've talked about direct play. You've talked about like vertical play. It's about getting the ball forward quickly. If you turn the ball over, then having a counter press which can you know, pick up the ball and, and then benefit from these destabilised moments where the defence is all over the place. That's, I think, diametrically opposed to what it was that Chelsea were doing. Now, Chelsea are the opposite, I think. Like Thomas Tuchel loves to hold the ball. Um, he loves to progress the ball through the first through the thirds. First phase is so slow, I thought. Yeah, and yeah. It's just super slow. It's really slow, and I find quite ponderous build-up play. And I think the issue that we've seen from Tuchel from the last few seasons in the Premier League is that his teams are, are really good at progressing the ball to the final third. When they get to the final third, they, they sort of run out of ideas. And I think part of the problem is, and this is really important, I think, when it comes to this game in particular, is that the, the way that Jesse Marsh has his team playing so in, intensely and pushing forward and, and committing to the press leaves a huge amount of space at the back that can be got at if you get into those spaces quickly. Now, the problem with Chelsea being super slow in their build-up is that by the time they get to the final third, Leeds have dropped into a, a decent defensive shape. So you're yeah. almost making it easier for them. You're saying, OK, we're going to be struggling. We're going to keep the ball in our own third as long as possible, giving you every chance to press as well. But then we're also not going to try and benefit from the the flip side of that for Leeds, which is being open at the back in in those moments. So I, it, this was a game that I, I did a preview podcast on this for a Leeds podcast and I talked about tempo I said this is where the game is going to be is going to be won and lost it's going to be the fact that Chelsea aren't going to put Leeds under enough problems when they are in possession of the ball and Leeds are going to cause Chelsea plenty of problems of their own so yeah this is Red Bull football and this is what is good about Red Bull football but it, I think it, there was a little bit of luck involved as well you know there's the Mendy incident yeah. you get a, a, a set piece now obviously set pieces are important to this approach play as well but if you actually look at the XG plot line um, that you see, you know, you, you see these sort of plot lines where it goes along and up. There's t basically two moments where leads cause problems. The rest of the time, there was there was barely anything. That's how this works. It's it's what we were talking about before with City and Newcastle. It's about leveling the playing fields. When you're playing against these big sides, you have to do something to pull them down to your level. And and Jesse Marsh has done that really well in this. And game. as well, and counter that as well, like Tuchel. Sorry, Seb. Like Tuchel. Um you can almost see parallels with what Guardiola is trying to do with controlling it by keeping it slow and, and maintaining that order. You uh, prevent the sorts of goals that they let in, but they lost control with the two goals. So they sort of threw it away. What were you going to say, Seb? 
I was just going to ask, John, JJ, what happens in this game if Chelsea take the lead? Like, what do Leeds look like after that? Leeds could have played exactly the same way and lost the game. That's what happens when you play against teams with players of this ability and calibre. And so that's what I think is going to be so interesting about Leeds this season is that I think they'll play like that against some teams and some teams will be better suited to be able to play against it. So what they'll do is they'll play it over the press. They'll say, there's no way we're going to be able to take Leeds on in terms of their pressing play. So we'll play over the top and we'll put them under immediate pressure in their back line. And Leeds will, I mean, we've seen it happen against Southampton. Like Southampton are a much worse team than Chelsea and they came from two goals down to to pull level last weekend. This weekend, Chelsea just didn't have the ability to just tear up their tactical blueprint and just go long and, and just try and pin Leeds back. So, yeah, I think it's it's an it's, it's an interesting one, but it is outlier football that you can't judge it by the way that we judge most of what happens in the Premier League because it's just so different. I've enjoyed this chat so much that I think I need a break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hello, I'm James Richardson. If, like me, you've ever felt like one of Cantona's cows watching gamely as football steams past like an express train, then why not join me three times a week over on the Totally Football Show? This Monday, for example, I'll be joined by Daniel Storey, Tom Williams and Benji Lignardo to explain what actually happened this Premier League weekend. Huh. Tuesday, it's the turn of the Euro crew, Horncastle, Honigstein, Alvaro Romeo and Julian Laurence to drop knowledge on all the continent's big stories, including this week the biggest last-minute comeback in Bundesliga history. Woof. Thursday then, it's back to our septic aisle to preview the weekend's Premier League games again with data beta Duncan Alexander and this week, analysis from Karl Anker and Adrian Clark. Join us then for cogent insight, fun and a few feeble puns plus the odd move from me. Just search for The Totally Football Show wherever you get your podcast. Ah, we're back. Tottenham 1, nil Wolves. Tim... You know about Wolves because you used to cover them. Yes. What's going on with Wolves here? So Bruno Lage is uh, trying to change them to be more of a possession-based team, mm-hmm. um, switch from the back three that Nuno's had into a four. Uh, is it just to deal with the threat of Tottenham's front five that he changed back to this back three, or is he going to switch systems during the season, do you think? No, I think that was very much a one-off to cover Perisic, so Neto was sort of sacrificed. So there were a five without the ball, but very much a four with it. I mean, Wolves played some... Really, really nice football in the first half. Front foot, possession base. You know, Nunes slotted pretty seamlessly into the midfield. I thought he had a decent game. Um, it's just the same old problem with Wolves. Is everything's fine until the final third, which is something they really need to rectify because their their goals record is just atrocious. I How guess. do they fix it? Is it as easy as saying buy a striker? People always say well, buy a striker, but is it chance creation? Is it the speed of the or the tempo getting the ball into the final third? They they do have a really good striker on the books by the name of Raúl Jiménez, but they've got this issue where Jimenez suffered this horrific fractured skull. This feels like a long time ago now. 
He was out for nine months and then they sort of gave him last season to try and get back to his old self. Didn't really happen, but they do feel that with nine months of football in his legs, you know, he'll be the man this season. Um, they are trying to sign a striker as well. Uh, they've, they've got so many good players in so many good areas. I mean, they've brought in Nathan Collins from Burnley for £20 million. Pounds. I thought he had a fantastic game. Um, I know he's, he's sort of let Harry Kane go, go for the goal, but other than that, him and Kilman are really good, probably underrated back two partnership. The midfield, Neves, Martinho, Nunes, you know, there's so much technical brilliance there. And then they've got loads of very, very good, skillful players out wide, like Neto, Guedes, who they've just signed, Pedence, Huang Yi Chan, Adama Traore for something different. You know, there, there are a lot of, but there are a lot of very. Let's talk about Adama Traore, come on. <laughs> what is he? So. I, th- I compare him quite to Alan St. Maxman in that he has this incredible ability to go past people and you can hardly contain him, but his output is is low. Do Wolves fans love this guy? Do, what, what do they think of him? Because Newcastle fans love St. Maximin. Mm. And I can see exactly why you would, cause it's so fun to watch, right? But then with Traore, he did okay at Barcelona. He had a couple of games where he had a couple of assists, but then couldn't get in the team. He's not a Barcelona player, probably. Is he a Wolves player? I don't think I don't think anymore. I don't think with, Lages, with what Large is trying to do. You know, he worked brilliantly under Nuno when Wolves were very much a counter-attacking team. Didn't really like the ball, happy to sit deep and hit teams on the break. Now they've gone another way, so their uh, possession stats have rocketed this season up to their 60% possession in the first two games. They have 50% of Spurs, which is pretty good, really. So I'm not sure where he fits in other than being uh, a jester-type like wild, wild card, wild card for the last 10 minutes, but he's certainly fallen down to the back of the pecking order. But I do like what Lars is trying to do. You know, he... He looked into sort of instigate some of these ideas last season, um, but quickly realised that he had Nuno's players. It was pretty smart management actually, because a few games into the season, he was like, "Okay, I need to buy myself some time here, get some results on the board." Yeah. So he went back to Nuno's deep line three four three. Now it's all about four at the back. That's all they've played with exclusively in pre season. Just needs a couple of players to to bring that to life. We well, you know how every manager comes in and says they want to play attractive attacking football, which Lage did at Benfica, I think. Absolutely, right? yeah. So he wants to try and do this, but you need the best players to be able to do that. So if every manager and every team is playing attractive attacking football. Who's going to win? Like, is it, is it is it better? So as a fan, right? So, so you watching Wolves? Not saying you're a Wolves fan. I don't know if you are. Do you support yeah, Wolves? Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was going to wear my Wolves shirt today, but then I've got I've got something to do later. So I thought, wearing my 1989 Manders Steve Bull shirt was probably not appropriate. You can wear it. It's my dad's name, Steve Bull. Is it? It My dad isn't Steve Bull. I'd love to meet him just on that basis alone. (laughs) Get him on FaceTime. Um, No, but what I'm trying to ask, I think, is that if you're at the detriment to your team's results, if you're changing from the style of play that gets you results but isn't great to watch and often you're up up against it in that 3-4-3 counter-attack system, is it better to watch a team progress into this more possession-based team, even if it means you're going to lose a bunch more games? Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, no, it's, there's probably a balance between the two, and I think Wolves will look to, to to switch between the two formations and systems, and I think we'll see against better teams, they probably will sit a little bit deeper and go for the counter-attack. They have got players that can do that. You know, they've missed... Diogo Jota was like a, a huge miss for the past two seasons. They need someone direct running at defenders. Was Pedro um, Neto, was he not injured for a while? Because I really rate him and he looks to be coming back into it. His, his per 90 numbers last season, his XA and XG, were really high. Mm, yeah. yeah, so he um, he broke his kneecap, which sounds extremely painful. Um, and had, Did the mafia catch up with him, didn't they? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so he had, he had um, 
Yeah. If George Mendes. Can I talk if, about that? <laughs> in the podcast? If, if, I mean, I know it doesn't exist, but. Yeah. If George Mendes wants you to sign a new contract, there are, there are certain lengths that, will, <laughs> that he may or may not go to. Probably won't go to. Let's just say that for legal reasons. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, he had, um, he had 10 months out, came back towards the end of last season, but it was mostly just about building up his fitness. Um, but, yeah, looking forward to seeing what he's got to do this season because he's, his ceiling is, is ridiculous. I, I would rate him higher than Jota, and I know a lot of people who've worked with him would say exactly the same. Pedro Neto, distracted by that. Siri just literally <laughs> shouted at me about something to do with Pedro Neto. Um, Seb, what I noticed from Pedro Neto is he did a very good job on even Perisic in this game. But what did you make of Spurs and generally what Perisic has brought to them on that left side rather than Sessegnon? Uh, a little bit early to tell with Perisic. I think the thing that's caught attention so far has been delivery, um, two-footed delivery from set pieces. Also, there's a little bit of organisation that he does. If you watch Perisic off the ball and you watch the way he talks to his teammates and you watch um, kind of the things that go on around him, having that level of experience, it's like having a um, uh, a traffic cop in that area of the pitch. It's it's kind of handy for Spurs because... A traffic cop? Well, a little bit because it's like, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, you know, someone directing things. I don't want to go with coach on the field. It's too much of a cliche. So I went with traffic cop, tried it out. You know, I just... Put it, you know, float it, see what happened. I think you opted for the word cop rather than traffic policeman police. sounded clumsy and a bit too like too much like something that I might say. So I thought, again, changed up, all to the routine. Trying new things today, say absolutely. I think Spurs generally were a little bit average here. I came away thinking, being very, very impressed by Wolves, I thought they were excellent. Also thinking if they did have a fully fit Raul Jimenez, um, Wolves would have scored probably a couple in the first half. The thing I'd say is that. There's a couple of issues that Conte is trying to navigate at the moment. The first is that Son has returned from preseason, very heavy legged, which happens. He's played a lot, awful lot of football. Probably no one uh, does more miles in a season than Son, given his international obligations and kind of given the burden on him. But that feeds into a positive in that previously with Spurs, two things would have happened in that game. It would have become very Son Kane centric and increasingly desperate. The second thing is that there would have been no goal because when they're in that kind of mood and everything's a little bit slow, ball circulation was very ponderous from Tottenham, I thought. They didn't have the the set-piece expertise to get themselves out of jail, and I felt that that was the difference. Not to go too sort of hard with the price of Vio just because the novelty of having a set-piece coach. Um, There's an interesting moment for me on Saturday when I was watching the game. Wolves conceded a corner, and I was just on the way to the fridge from the living room. I thought, no. I'm going to watch the watch the corner because they're interesting now. Because Spurs, you know how every supporter thinks that their team is the worst, uh, the worst at corners ever in the world. My team is terrible at corners, never score from corners, first man, first man, over hit, etc. There are lots of really interesting things. And as per the game at Stamford Bridge last week, if you watch the the corner that Tottenham score from and watch what Vio does with the centre halves, he creates this kind of seal. So you've got Davis, you've got Sanchez, and you've got Dyer go all going to the to the near post, sealing off all of the Wolves players apart from Nathan Collins, who's left in a a one on one with Harry Kane. And like Tim mentioned, it it's a it's a mistake. Um, he kind of flinches a little bit. Kane gets ahead of him, but it's just going to happen. Kane's a really really good player, and his movement is exceptional in that position. He's a great finisher, and that's really the one moment of, of absolute quality that Spurs produced, and that was the difference. And that feels like where they are not playing particularly well, getting results, getting goals, getting points at important moments. And I think there's still a little bit to do in the transfer market because I'm not sure Mora is quite the player that Conte needs him to be in this system. He's very predictable versus someone like Kulisewski. Gilles is not going to get minutes. It's a little bit light at the top of the pitch, but they're, they're in a good position. 
Your cat's getting up. Yeah, he's having a stretch. Watch, watch the way he stretches. It's really funny. If, oh, if he does nice. it. So I recommend watching this podcast because look at Luca. He's nice. Luca's, uh, yeah. Someone else who's nice is Morgan Gibbs-White. <laughs> and he <laughs> has been sold for £42.5 million pounds Nottingham Forest. Uh, I'll just ask, explain. <laughs> <laughs> Crikey. Uh, it's 25 up front. I don't, it won't get to 42. So That's I'm all told. add-ons. There's be, some very um, unrealistic add-ons in there. 20, is he worth that money? Was it no, high potential? he's not. You're still, you're still paying for potential. He's not actually really done anything at Wolverhampton Wanderers in terms of the first team. I mean, also, we did a video, remember? I might have remembered that. We did a video together. But you talked about... So I thought, in my head, Gibbs White is a central midfielder. That's why I remember him. But they've been playing him wide right recently. That's where he started. They never Wolves never trusted him in that midfield two in their three four three. He just literally never played there. But he's never been a sort of a right winger in, in his career. So he's had to learn that role. Basically did it at Sheffield United on the job last season. And that's what Forrest are paying for. What what he did at Sheffield United last season, which was a great season in the championship. I, I did always think that Gibbs White in the mould of like Madison and others needed that full season in the championship. So Madison had a full season at Norwich, didn't he? And Mount went to Derby. Aberdeen, and... you're thinking of. <laughs> there he's got a free kick top. That free kick, yeah. That's an amazing free oh, kick for anyone who hasn't seen it. Yeah. But he was, a, he was a YouTube player at Aberdeen. Like he, he couldn't properly get in the first team, Madison. He, um, he would be okay, but drift in and out of games, wasn't involved as much as a midfielder should be, but didn't really create a chance either. It's a kind of strange league sometimes as well. No, when you're cinched, Jim, did he? no, we're not going to the cinch thing. And uh, yeah, let's stay with Tim, sorry. <laughs> Yeah, and like yeah, Mason Mount at Derby and Harvey Barnes, and you know Gibbs White just needed that. He he wasn't he was only getting minutes off the bench at Wolves, and it, you know he needed to play regularly. They are paying for potential. It's 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 a sort of a calculated risk from Wolves to let him go, but with that kind of money, and you know, quite boring. But he had two years left on his contract, and he was just didn't want to talk about having a new one. And he knows Steve Cooper at Forest really well. They won the Under Seventeen World Cup together, and he played mm. played for him at Swansea briefly. So he was very keen to go and work with Steve Cooper again. How did he get on in the week, weekend, Seb? Did he play for Forest this Yeah, weekend? he came on as a sub. Uh, he had a couple of brilliant touches. There was one moment, you know when you um, you have a fixed idea of a player and then you see him do something and it just completely changes? He had one of those against Everton. Came on, um, took the ball like in the kind of um, near left position about 10 yards inside the Everton half and just took one touch and burst through two Everton defenders and just thought, what's a good player? Um didn't have much of it because I feel like um, uh, Forrester a little bit, after they scored their goal, they became a little bit sort of defensive. And um, throughout the game, actually, they, they required, they needed Den- Dean Henson to play really, really well um, to get their point. But he looks like a good player. Like, I, I, I don't really have an opinion on the fee just because like whenever you see a British player and you ever see a British player being signed by a club that needs reinforcement inverted commas needs for Forest because they seem I think to... it's English player. I think we can limit it to English right? Yeah, because it is I, th- I suppose Scottish they struggle to get money I mean for it. I would say that it's just like Nathan Collins commanded um, a big fee and he's Irish, Irish. yeah so you... no but sort of British and Irish like you, you, not necessarily homegrown but players from sort of players that I suppose a particular type of manager trusts in British football like that's probably the clumsy way to put it but there is a little bit of premium that's that applies to all of them he looks like a really good footballer. Um, I've seen him play age group football, but I've, I've long ago kind of stopped judging people within that context because it's such a false economy. He looks like an asset because he looks like something, he looks like a player that does things that nobody else of that position in that Forest squad can do at the moment. They signed Remy Fuller, who's more of a, a possession-based player. So yeah, he, he had, a, had a, a kind of, um, we'll call it a cameo. That's the best way of putting it, I think. 
let's move on to Syria. So I'm, I'm laughing because I was imagining he's saying it for there's not going to be vertical. Like he's a sideways. Well, man. he's sort of Remy Fulu, like, like when he receives the ball, he, you can't grow tall. he's not going to take players on really. Like he's a passing player. Whereas... Um, well, I meant his height though. You well, know, yeah, so. he's... I was being silly. You, but it, I've ruined the podcast again. Let's move on, on to Syria. On last week's pod... Listener Sal Architetto. I hope you've said your name. I've said your name. I feel like you need to put, oh put some accent into that, JJ. I'm not doing Architetto. that because I don't know what you're allowed to do. And I commented, I'd love if you guys would deep dive more into Serie A. Well, Sal, grab yourself an espresso. Is that what you've written? <laughs> oh, yeah. It's, 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 it's silly. Little espresso. I'm trying to keep yeah. this so it's sensible. <laughs> well, Sal, That's grab yourself a normal food or item that anyone might have in this Western globalized world. Because next up, we're going to talk calcio. It's calcio? Calcio. Calcio. I got that right. Calcio. So that whole bit again? Nah, it's fine. <laughs> and we're back from a break. Serie A. Juventus haven't won the Scudetto for two seasons. What happened to them? John McKenzie's going to tell you soon in a video on Tifo YRL. And both Milan clubs look strong. There are as many as four title contenders this year. Milan, Inter, Milan, Juventus... Roma, need to add Napoli to this group. In my opinion, John McKenzie. <laughs> <laughs> You're just going to read out everything in writing. I might, is, yeah. I, I could abuse this. But yeah, really interesting. You mentioned that I'm bringing out a video later in the week. But I, I think the, the thing isn't just that Juventus haven't won Serie A for two seasons. It's that before that, they won nine consecutive titles. And um, yeah, it, it suddenly blown open. And you, we've got teams There's at hope the for the Bundesliga yet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I I think that that this is going to be a fun title challenge because you've got the the two Milan teams doing well. AC Milan playing a very different brand of football, so really high intensity, uh, heavy pressing, uh, but also like really really quick transitions as well. So that's fun. Inter doing the things that they were doing when when Conte was around still, uh, and looking like probably the best team in terms of that that sort of build up control. You've got Juventus who, yeah, they've, they've, they've sort of had this weird trajectory where they, they wanted to modernise to try and perform better in the Champions League and brought in originally Maurizio Sarri and then Andrea Pirlo. Um, and because the, the numbers were bad for the Pirlo season, they sort of panicked and went running back to Max Allegri, who was the manager at the time when they decided that they weren't going to win the Champions League. And so they're, they're, they're sort of this big grandee club who... Uh, you, you know you expect to see in the Champions League season in season out um, but they've it almost feels as though they've they've put themselves at the back of the queue just by by doing something that was on the pe- on paper quite smart um, so yeah that that's that's fascinating as well we've got Roma with with Jose Mourinho who we all know you're a big fan of you do like him don't you yeah I've, I've sort of been different I think he's a very very talented manager one of the best of all time um, but you're excited about his Roma right uh, I think it's interesting watching a master of his craft build something and be allowed to put the bits together. Like he's put a lot of new players into there. I think they got the improved last season. I think Alex did the videos last season. Alex Stewart, you made him a call uh, of who that is. I'm sure you do because <laughs> we like Alex. He's not here. John's here now. How's it going? Well, this isn't awkward no, at all. But, um... No, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is the final name I added to that list. Right, sure, They've yeah. had some really fun transfers this this window. They just they they um absolutely battered Monza yesterday 4-0 um and they brought in some really fun players. Feature Gvaris Scalia. Company. 
Huh? Yeah, that's right. Monzo. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, don't joke. It won't be long before, you know, NatWest will be in the Premier League probably. But um, yeah, the Kvitsa Gvaritskaria, this this Georgian player who everyone's been talking oh, about. Oh, he was and, brilliant um, yesterday. Really good. Yeah, a really exciting player. <laughs> We've lost JJ. I'm just going to plow on here. <laughs> um, They've brought in Minjay Kim uh, from, from Fenerbahce, a uh, centre-back. He scored yesterday. Frank uh, Andres Ambo Ang. Angisa from Foot will know from Fulham. He he was made into a permanent contract. Um, he's a really exciting player. Matias Oliveira from Catafe. Raspadori from Sassuolo. Again, another hipster name that people are excited about. Tongi Andombele, who we know from Spurs. It's just really, really exciting players all the way down. So I think they're going to be. I don't know how well they're going to perform, but they definitely. Did you know that? Um, but Will. No, I was going to say. Did you? Did anybody know that Adamola Lookman had signed for Atalanta? I was watching that game over the weekend, and on he came. And I had absolutely yeah. no idea that he'd moved. I missed it completely. Um, Atlanta played really well, by the way. Very, very unfortunate just to get a point against AC Milan. Well, the one I could add in with some information is that Gini Wijnaldum went to mm. Roma and has now broken his tibia, yeah, yeah. which is in the leg. It is. I think so. Yes. I want to say that's the... <laughs> is that the lower bit of the leg? Femur's the, the higher bone in the leg. The tib- it's the tibia and the fibula. They're the two bones in the shin, okay, right? I don't know which one's And the which, femur's kind of thigh, shin. I think. Ankles has got something Go on, to say about it. Come Go on, on, ankles. Apparently, a tibia is also known as a shank bone. <laughs> so there we go. Tim, do you think Serie A is going to be as, as good as the 90s? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. A deep dive in Serie A there. Uh, well, not quite a deep dive, but a substantial splash. That's a Steve Hankism. I learned something about Serie A yesterday. So I um, yeah, tell one of my favourite games of the weekend is the the early game in Italy because it kicks off at 11.30 UK time. And um, I got all upset because I was looking through the fixture list and it appeared as if that fixture had been scrubbed because it wasn't on the calendar. Actually, what I found out, which I should have known a long time ago, mm. is that that doesn't exist until September because it's too warm in August to play that game in that time slot. Same in, same in Spain, apparently. So a bit of knowledge acquired on a Sunday. I feel like I have learned... So now I must have another break to learn it more. Ah, yes, we're back again for Brighton 2-0 West Ham. I believe you watched this, Seb, didn't you? Yeah, West Ham. West Ham haven't scored goals yet. No, so West Ham 0-2 Brighton. Bit worrying for West Ham. To me, they feel like a a team stuck between stations because the most effective and most comfortable counter-attacking and they face a Brighton team who are uh, firstly really, really good in possession, but also really, really good at having possession and organising themselves in a way which doesn't allow counter-attacking, which is the key thing. And West Ham looks super lost. A couple of like minor issues in the, within there as well. Like um, I think the phrase for Mikel Antonio might be wear and tear. He looks um, pretty jaded, heavy-legged, however you want to describe it. There also that Antonio Scamacca dynamic is weird. So Moyes played both of them for. I think for about 25 minutes on Sunday, um, brought Skamaka on. And I don't know, they, they they represent kind of different schools of thought, don't they? Because Antonio's a counter-attacking player. It's like a sort of, um, does so many things well, particularly in channels though. Skamaka, you want things to gather around him. He's not a target man as such because he's a really complete um, cultured footballer, but it feels like they're trying to do two things at the same time and it's not quite working. And shouldn't be judged on this because I think he's a good player, but Tilo Kada had a terrible debut, gave away the penalty in the first half, also got caught dropping when the rest of the defensive line was stepping up for the um, the Trossard goal. 
So a bit of a chemistry issue there. Kurt Zuma had a bad game. One thing I didn't realise is that there are quite a few West Ham fans who um, have fallen out of love with Thomas Suchek and a bit negative about his contribution in midfield, which I had completely missed because I still think of him as a kind of like, oh, you've got to have him in my fancy team. Uh, he'll score a goal from a set piece. But um, not that popular at the moment. So he's not scoring goals from set pieces. In fact, they're not scoring any. Not scoring goals from set pieces, but it was also, it feels a bit clunky in that area. And I don't know if that is about Suchek, but ball progression is not what it needs to be for West Ham to kind of make use of. It's like, think about sort of the attacking players they've got around the centre forwards. Yeah, it's not working at the moment. I, I don't, I mean, they're unlucky against Man City and Forrest really unlucky because they, you know, they really should have won that game. Um, this was not terrific, um, so we'll see. Um, maybe um, maybe David Moyes will bring a couple of players in, I don't know. Well, Tim, what do you think? Yeah, good question. Um, <laughs> well, that's a, a, yeah, it's a West Ham, are they poor this season? Brighton are really good, we can talk about Brighton in a bit, but do you think, what do you see in West Ham this season? Are they What are they missing? Is it? I feel like we're seeing a bit of a theme with certain teams that have still got a bit of business to do left yet, and this is the, early, this is the season where... The season has started the earliest into the window before, I think. So there's like some teams have got to play five Premier League matches before the window closes. Because of the World and, Cup, right? Yeah, and you've got teams like uh, Arsenal who are pretty settled. Spurs have done business very early. You know, they've, they've made good starts. Brighton, Brentford, again, seem, seem very settled. And then you've got other teams who've still got some important recruitment to do who are struggling. Maybe that's just a bit of a generalisation, but it mm. certainly seems the case with some teams, West Ham being one. I mean, Skamaka and Cornet need to be integrated into that 11, you know, sooner rather than later. Um, I'm told the boos were very, very loud at full time. The loudest they've been quite a while. Which is um, impressive in that stadium. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Any kind of atmosphere. To, to hear it, actually. How do you think Moyes wants his team to play? Like, what do you think he wants West Ham to look like? Perhaps he's going to be, like I said, we're saying, a little bit stuck in between what's done well for West Ham in the past and what he wants to do in the future and there's definitely they definitely do look a bit jaded whether that's an after effect of a very very busy season but I see season. I think this with David Moyes teams is that they tend to look a bit boring and like nothing's really happening and they, they're efficient so they will play for set pieces a lot and they'll make use of height often um, always quite physically strong like, like strong not maybe rapidly quick a lot of his teams but they get things done in a certain patient methodical way without anything exciting. like Very much, you look at Newcastle, high press against Man City, you look at uh, Wolves changing to have total control of that game against Spurs, so they put him and his on, losing a bit of control there. Like Quite clear identities. West Ham, maybe between them, like we're saying. Brighton, though, are absolutely playing. So they've beaten Man United, obviously, drew with Newcastle, which, that's I mean, that's okay. But here, this is a good win for them. How long... What's, what's the question about this? Are Brighton good? Are they going to be in that you, top five? I just have one thing there, um, JJ, because it feels like we should caveat concerns about West Ham. Like when mm. you lose at home to Brighton, um, there are a couple of forces at work. Firstly, um, people are still of the mindset that Brighton are a small, newly promoted team, which is not really true to what they've become. They've developed and progressed so much since they moved up to the Premier League. But also, like I suppose, as a fan watching the team lose to them, you're watching a team that are really good with the ball, really attractive, a lot of sensible signings, a lot of stuff that works basically, and it's a re- it creates a really unflattering contrast, which is probably quite antagonistic. And I feel like Brighton are in that place where, as opposed to West Ham, who kind of need counter-attacking opportunities for their old way of playing to work, Brighton just are comfortable having the ball, which sounds like a simple thing, but it's amazing how many teams are not comfortable just having the ball. 
that don't really yeah. know what to do with it, who are, who are kind of dependent on game state to either create or score goals or to feel comfortable in leads or to exploit weaknesses. And Brighton are not one of them. And um, by the way, um, Danny Welbeck, super on Sunday. It's so nice to see him play well. It's, he just looks, he, he was absolutely excellent. He's so, um, he's such a, a selfless forward. He's so willing to work and um, yeah, he does it with all this elegance. He's just he's a really fun player to watch and, and really nice to, to watch him play well in, a, in, a, in a quite a big game for Brighton. Well, on Welbeck, um, go to you again, Tim. Brighton, they keep the ball very well. They have a player like Welbeck, but they still struggle to score goals. Are they another teams that need to, oh, they're missing this final piece of the puzzle to be able to make things happen? Potentially. I mean, if, if, if Danny Welbeck's going to be fit for the season, then then probably not. Although it seems like they're quite willing to let Neil Morpay go. That particular experiment hasn't they're worked. They're quite different, right? Welbeck's probably more mm. suited to the... Like a high pressing system, you can offer you multiple things within the channels. Moppy's more of a poacher, would you say? Yeah, true. I guess you'd also look at their really good start and see that they've played Man United and West Ham, two teams who are in a lot of trouble at the moment. But um, yeah, it always it always has kind of felt like the missing piece is a striker for Brighton. But you know, some of the football they play would maybe disprove that. Graham Potter seems to go about things in a, a different way. It's, you know, they've got some really really nice footballers. They're very very nice to watch. John, how long until Graham Potter is the manager of who's in trouble? Chelsea, Man United, Liverpool have had a bad start. Where's he going next? I would love to see him at a top club. I think he's an excellent manager, and yeah, like Seb saying, like a lot of the 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 narratives about Brighton are that people don't expect them to be very good at all. Um, but they are. They're just they're excellent. He's he's super flexible. I think like he he his teams can switch between formations. They can play high pressing football if they need to which they did against Manchester United went man for man they can also sit in a really solid mid block as well they they can move between a back three or a four and and do so in a way that I think is functional which a lot of teams don't um I just think he's a super smart manager and um yeah I I, I, I would argue that Brighton possibly the best team outside the top six at the moment um which seems mm. which seems irreverent or something or controversial, but then like who's who who are we saying that is at the moment is better than than Brighton? Mm. I suppose define your terms just because I, I, I don't disagree actually. That they're, they're they're the team that I've admired the most watching this season outside the top six. And also I'm interested by what um Indav brings when he when he when I'm not quite sure what the plan is there. Uh, scored a lot of goals in Belgium. Slightly on unorthodox person, like a, a looking footballer, has a kind of strange gait. Yeah, it looks a little bit like Vincent Janssen in a way, which um, I'm prone to distrust. Um, but that's a, like um, a facility they didn't have previously at the top of the pitch. And I'm really impressed by the fact that they've lost Basuma, they've lost Cucurella, and they haven't missed a step. And it shouldn't surprise. I mean, look at who they've beaten away from home over the last few you know months. Um, yeah, May United and West Ham, but. Um, Arsenal and Spurs within two weeks of each other at the end of last season as well. That's just a good team. There's no, there's no caveat. It's not. We're not waiting to be disproved. They are just good, and seemingly get, getting better the more comfortable and and long term Graham Potter's tenure becomes. So yeah, good. Well, uh, someone or something, some people who are comfortable are Paris Saint Germain because over in Ligue 1 on the weekend it was Lille. One on set. Yes? Yes. We. Oui. Lille 1 set PSG. PSG. G I'm trying to say Lille 1 7 PSG. Uh, wow. 
They, so the two seasons ago, for context, for anyone who wasn't sure, Lille won the league with Christophe Galtier being in charge of them at the time. He is now the PSG manager. John did a really good video on how PSG might be able to play under him because he's tend to focus on a 4-4-2, but it's very much a... It's like a 3-5-2? No, 3-4-3, isn't it? 3-4-3, yeah. Yeah, to get the front three. And the front three combined for a goal in the first seven or eight seconds. Did you watch this game, Tim? No, but I've heard about this goal and who it's been inspired by, which is which is remarkable. <laughs> who is it inspired by? Uh, Bournemouth, uh, who did exactly the same thing for a goal last season, I think, from the kickoff. And Real Madrid copied them as well with Ancelotti. Sparta Rotterdam scored it as well last week. Like it's it's a kind of it's an ongoing thing. Right? Yeah, people keep copying this goal and scoring it. Yeah, and, and PSG are just the latest. So it's one of the attacking players. So Messi, Neymar, and uh, Bappe, the ones who link, and the, the goal. You'll be able to find it online. I think it's been tweeted by BT Sport actually. Um, but they combine and Messi just drops deeper and then hits this first time ball all over the top from Bappi to run him behind, who times his run perfectly just to get in behind him and lobs the keeper. It's really, really good. But I mean, this is, uh, like for, for context, right, how good PSG look already this season. Neymar has five goals and six assists in three games. Messi has three goals and two assists in three games. And Bappi has four goals and no assists in two games. It seems very much as well that when... Mbappe scored this goal because the noise of the last week has been that Mbappe's not very happy about something. Don't know what it was. They're trying to keep it all in house, and then they score, and the whole team gathers round. Is that? Do you think it's performative, Seb? The, the way they celebrate, or is that a genuine? They're trying to prove everyone wrong. It feels to me like everything PSG do is performative, JJ, just because the noise around them is so incessant and it's this theme is so repetitive. Like the idea of like especially Mbappe, what he controls, what he influences, what his relationship with Neymar is. Like if you think about, I mean, this goes back to, do you remember the, the conversation about Neymar and Cavani during his first season? And there was exactly the same chatter around who's passing was to who. Was it penalties, wasn't it? Yeah, who's taking penalties and and, and what, what what's his expression when Cavani missed that chance? And it, it's just the same thing. So I think, I think this becomes part of the job description for a PSG player is like, it's PR as well, like celebrate a goal and, you know, they're playing really good football. So part of it's organic, but it's just something that you need to do because otherwise in go the headlines and the, the kind of headline writers and the, the kind of commentary becomes very, very negative around the club. So it's just, yeah, it's what you have to do, I guess. Well, one of the uh, stars on show in this game is Vitinha, who PSG signed in the summer window, who used to play for Wolves. What is Vitinha? What is he? <laughs> <laughs> So he's a pretty technically gifted Portuguese midfielder who some, somehow made his way to Wolves um, via Jorge Mendes. In what possible uh, because they were to Wolves? Yeah. Yeah. Where they, where quite, the, how did they know a, about him? What a, happened? Quite a stunning signing out of nowhere. Um, so yeah, he was he was sort of the right player at the wrong time for Wolves. Really, he was you know to use a couple of cliches, but he was a little bit lightweight and couldn't really get to grips with Premier League intensity and he certainly wasn't ready to play in a midfield two and he wasn't a winger either, so it didn't fit in Wolves' formation. So yeah, they chose not to sign him for £20 million. Nuno turned him down and then so did Bruno Large as well, just felt he wasn't quite ready. I mean, in hindsight, what they should have done is signed him and possibly loaned him out because um, now he's worth a, a lot more money. <laughs> so easy to say that in hindsight for everyone though, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I remember speaking to someone who worked really closely with him who said he could be a better version of Jean Moutinho. You know, he's got the intelligence of Moutinho. He can control the tempo of a game like him, but he's got a much better passing range um, and he's just as technically gifted. So there are very high hopes for him to have a really nice football career. 
Is that, a, is that a midfield two that we'll see in Champions League games from PSG? Because the draw is on Thursday for the groups, right? And you've got Vitinha and Verratti playing that midfield two. Marquinhos playing a central centre-back. I guess he could step into... Yeah, that's what he's been doing He's in possession as well, just sort of stepping forward into the midfield area and just giving another line of defence ahead of the, the, the then back two, I suppose. Um, but yeah, really interesting because we... I mean, my video is all about how can PSG play a 4-4-2, which is what um, Christophe Galtier has played most of his career. Um, and he just comes in and straight up plays a 3-4-3, fits in those three players. And we've had the perennial arguments, right? Every time we get a new PSG manager, it's how do you fit these three players in Messi, Neymar and, and, and Mbappe? And he seems to have, have done it well. But yeah, I, I'm with you. I think this is there's so many teams now around Europe who are looking fantastic in their leagues and it's hard to know what it's going to look like in the Champions League. So Bayern are the same. Like Bayern absolutely tonking everyone in the in the Bundesliga at the moment. But what are they going to look like when they come up against you know opposition that can cause them problems? And I think for me at the moment, PSG are still in that in that camp. Like what are they what are they going to look like against um, against Champions League opponents? But I think it's going to be a really good Champions League iteration this time around because of this. Well, I feel like because uh, you're here, Tim, I should ask you, unrelated to Vitinha and the George Mendes link, what does Mendes actually do with Wolves? What's his involvement with that? How does that work? Blimey. How long, how long have we got? Are we going to start the podcast I would say again? two <laughs> minutes. Summarise it in two minutes. So, I mean, people will know of his, of his well-trodden links with other clubs, like sort of, well, mostly the Portuguese clubs, but also Valencia, Zenit St. Petersburg and whatnot. The difference with Wolves is... Um, it's financially beneficial for him and for Wolves to do well because Wolves' owners, Fosun, have a stake in Mendes's guest of agency, mm-hmm. which sounds a bit dodgy, but he's completely legal and above board. George Mendes, a very visible presence at Wolves. They don't really hide the fact that he's there quite a lot. He was there for the last home game. Um, he has a number two who's pretty much there full time. And yeah, it's... Um, it's derided by a lot of people, the way that Wolves do things, bringing in guest of clients, and it does narrow their search when it comes to recruitment. And because he would be, uh, how do I word this for make it fine, he would be financially advantageous for him to bring in players that come through his just a few yeah, companies. Absolutely, every, every single time a deal is done, you know. Do they buy players outside of that? Yeah, they do. So, they, I mean, they have a fully functioning uh, recruitment and scouting team, um, and I know that there are frustrations in that team that, you know, they're, 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 they scout and research and identify players in a completely normal way and put them forward for suggestion. And then George Mendes will come along and say, hey, I've got someone who can do that. N- not Nathan Collins. You know, there are examples that come through um, that aren't Irish players. Is he not, what, isn't he not Portuguese, Nathan Collins? No. <laughs> so he, I think he's, he he did get to the Algarve on holiday uh, once. <laughs> Colinia, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, it works really well for us, particularly the, the Portuguese thing, I think it uh, certainly helps sign-ins settle better and they've got a nice little community yeah, in Wolverhampton and, you know, it, it, it does it does work for them. I think they'll potentially hit a ceiling quite soon by only narrowing themselves with get a few players. I'm not sure that can take you to the... Well, it depends the, how many good players they get signed up early, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm sure Ronaldo will turn up at Molyneux uh, one day. M- m- <laughs> maybe on one leg, you know, towards the end of his career. Oh, because George Mendes is his... Yeah, absolutely. Agent. He's number one. Jose Mourinho as well? Jose Marino will, will manage him at Molyneux. <laughs> <laughs> Bernardo Silva as well. Yeah, they'll, they'll all end up there one day. But yeah, it's 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 proved really successful. I know that there are envious eyes from from other boardrooms across the country as to, you know, how, how can we get this? How can we get our own sort of Mendes link? Because without him, Wolves might not even be a Premier League club, you know, let alone 
Well, when they went and put, what's Ruben Neves and Matinho in that exactly. team in the first division? And, and, and Jota, you know, played some of the best championship football probably ever. Yeah. Um, it was ridiculous. So there are a lot of advantages to it. You can get Jean Matinho for five million and, and keep him for five years. Um, you get some duds as well, but on the whole, um, it Matinho, works who's well. now the central midfielder at PSG. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I thought it was very interesting. I bet we probably should have asked that earlier and done much more on it, really. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, probably. But we've given them a taster to go and read more of Tim. Oh yeah, oh yeah. There's loads. Oh, that's fantastic, wasn't it? There's loads to read about it on theathletic.com. Forward slash tifo. Yeah, exactly. So theathletic.com forward slash tifo. And if you want to learn more about George Mendes's involvement with Wolves and also other things that Tim writes about, it's not just Wolves. Uh, you can do that, and I think you should do that. Really, so many great writers, so many but one of the top five is in this room. <laughs> uh, and that's excellent. So I think we've covered a lot of things and I think I think we're good, Seb. You feel we're good? I feel we're good. Yeah, all right. I like that. I like that. Um, your cat's still sleeping. I like that. Well, I think we've everything rounded up now. So I will bid you adieu and say thank you, Tim Spears. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. Thank you, John McKenzie. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thank you. Thank you. Oh. That's okay, we'll keep going. John's camera has died, it's fine. Uh, thank you, Seb Stafford Blower. Thank you, JJ Bull. And his good gates. And thank you uh, to. Are you going to. Oh. Maybe thank you to Luca the Cat. Like thank Luke, you, he's, he's provided oh. a little bit of background. There he is, yeah. there he is. He's oh. heard his name. Heard his name, he's up. Yeah. Thank you, Luca the Cat. Yeah. Thank you, producer Jamie, doing the video today. And thank you, producer Steve Hankey, who's here doing all the things, making it run. And that's it. See you next time. Keep on trucking. The Athletic.